Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365. At last, football's back. Not just any old football, but live Bundesliga football, all weekend and on Monday night. Coverage begins on BT Sport with the Ruhr derby between Borussia Dortmund and Schalke, or, to polish it up for an English audience, Jaden Sancho against John Joe Kenny. Sancho has been involved in 55 goals since August 2018. Kenny has excelled on loan from Everton. They prove the German game is a great platform for younger players. The question is, Seb, does that come down to trust in talent or just the business model? bit of both, Mike. I think it's the opportunity. It's a little bit to do with the type of footballer that we're breeding in this country, which is a kind of a slightly more cosmopolitan adult, someone that's a bit more open to the opportunities that exist abroad. But I think also it's it's an environment issue. Germany has very smartly, the Bundesliga has, has developed this reputation for providing opportunity for players and providing clearer pathways. So if you go across to the Bundesliga from, I don't know, a academy or a, um, you know, from, from the substitute bench of a, a top eight Premier League side, I think you can map your future more easily. It's a very smart, very canny USP that they seem to have developed because another player that's toying with the idea of moving across is Jude Bellingham and there isn't a, a more coveted teenager in English football. And can you imagine 20 years ago, Mike, someone in, in his position with that kind of reputation, the idea that he would go anywhere other than a top British side would be outrageous it's become the destination for blue chip youth yeah i can't wait to see it again yeah and you know from your perspective aid would you have wanted that type of opportunity when you were a sort of 18 19 20 yeah i think i would have done mike it's a once in a lifetime opportunity isn't it to broaden your horizons and what a time in your career to be able to do that because <sighs> I always think that, that there's a huge difference between the sort of age of, of 13 and 18. And, and a lot of talent just turns out to be not quite good enough. Not, 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 you know, players aren't, don't have the all round skill set to make it who are special at 13, then at 18. And then comes the next big challenge, sort of 18 to 22. I think they're huge developmental years in any young player's career and you need to play. And if you are stuck, in a reserve team, if you are on the periphery, on the bench every week, being looked after, being paid handsomely by a Premier League club, you're not going to develop, are you? If you're not getting that game time. And, that, and that's what these German clubs are offering. The blue chip, and I like that phrase, the blue chip kids that we have to offer that maybe are stagnating. And John Joe Kenny is a case in point because Seamus Coleman is there. He's still, he's still a fixture in and around the first team environment they signed Sidibe didn't they in his position and and that pathway was blocked he's not a bad player he's a very good player he needed to play and and he sensibly chose Schalke who've given him a a wonderful platform so yeah yeah, in a long-winded way absolutely I would have I would have taken this opportunity had it had it been handed to me providing that my situation was suited to it because look if you if you're English and your manager loves you and you're playing most weeks, stay in the Premier League, it's no problem. But if you're not, what a great plan B option the Bundesliga are giving players. 
Yeah, you you look at the way that Sancho has built his career. His career has exploded in Germany. Very grounded kid, still comes back to to London, plays in cage football, which obviously produced him or the type of player that he is. Within the context of that team, Seb, how does he fit in? Because, you know, I look at it as probably the most exciting, maybe not the best side in Europe, but certainly the most exciting side at the moment when you think of Sancho, Haaland, Gio Reyna, players like that. Some talk even that Manchester United's Angel Gomez might be the next to go there. It's a team which is based on youth and adventure, which has got to be worth watching. Yeah, it's also a team that's built on ball movement, which is another thing which really suits Sancho just because he's so smart. I mean, you've spent time with him, Mike. You know this. He's an intelligent guy and that manifests in the way he plays the game. But I, I think the way I look at Dortmund, and this was very clear when... I, I know they, they ended up losing the Champions League to Paris Saint-Germain, but in the first leg of that game, you look at those players as components. They all seem to fit their position in a really intricate way. They're like a, you know, a very well-carved puzzle. And Sancho, Sancho's unusual for a superstar because if you think about if you think about the kind of players that have broken out in the few, in the past, it's because they do spectacular things. They score thirty yard goals, you know, they beat six players at a time, that kind of thing. They're they're rouletting their way up the pitch. Sancho, to me, is just more of a he's kind of he's one of those players which is really excellent at the nuts and bolts of the game: movement, vision, creativity, when to release the ball, not where to put it and what to do with it but when to release it when's the right time after you've beaten the defender to shift it and allow the opportunity to develop for someone else and I think with those attributes Dortmund is a perfect environment for him because of the way that team's been constructed because of the other players I mean you know you forget someone like Marco Royce who's I I think he's about 29 now but it's, it's almost as if he's 35 he's been around for so long it's also one of the reasons I want him to stay there because you want to see English players you know play on a certain stage yes but you also want to see them in, in environments which don't just reward them for their talent financially, although they're perfectly entitled to chase those opportunities. You want to see them where their skills are given the best platform. And for Sancho, you couldn't have designed a better environment than Dortmund. When you look at it, it's not just the Bundesliga, it's Bundesliga 2 as well. Stuttgart is a, is a massive club. You only have to go there to you know, see a 60,000-seater stadium a club with a great tradition, former Bundesliga champions. They've got two, I think, fascinating English players. In defence, they've got Liverpool's Nat Phillips, who, you know, came back for the the Mercy Dash for, for the FA Cup tie during the earlier in the season. I think also they've got a really fascinating midfield player, Clinton Moller. I know the scouting community were very, very sweet on, on him, and they think that, Stuttgart got in for a steal, €400,000. They play Wiesbaden on Sunday, newly promoted team. They're probably going to struggle because they only got 10 points out of 12 home games, worse than the division. It's a really interesting setup, that, isn't it? And obviously, Thomas Hitzelsberger oversees Stuttgart. Yeah, it is. It's just a huge club. What what a great experience. OK, it's not, it's not the Bundesliga, it's Bundesliga 2, but they're playing at the top end of that division. And I always think it's much, much easier. I, you know, I've had, had loan spells. I remember, you know, various teams and, and, and the, the ones that were higher up in the table, it, it was so much easier to, to settle in because the environment was, was a happier one. It's hard to go into teams that, that are struggling. Mola's barely had a kick really, unfortunately. He's, he's sort of still making his way. He just had a handful of minutes, but, but Nat Phillips, I know has been brilliant for them. Ball playing centre half and, and from what I hear, Stuttgart are very, very keen to make his loan deal permanent. And and look, if, if if you're in his position, he's thinking, well, I'm doing great here. Klopp must be noticing me. But the problem is, is his age. And he, he's into his early 20s now, Nat Phillips. And, and I remember being in that position myself. And, and if you're not a fixture in a first team at the age of 22, you need to be, really. And, and for that reason... If he's happy there, this could be a permanent move in the offing. And look, could have a promotion on his CV at the end of the season into the Bundesliga. And suddenly, in a couple of years' time, if he continues to develop, 
he could be snapped back up by a Liverpool or, or by another Premier League club that, that that notices how well he's done. So, yeah, well done to, to Nat Phillips, first and foremost, for, for grasping the opportunity. And then secondly, for, for, for playing so well. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, obviously, there is a transitional stage usually. To an extent, Sancho skipped that. I found it quite interesting looking at Ethan Ampadu at Leipzig, where he's had to overcome a pretty difficult start, hasn't he, uh, Seb? Yeah, he has done. He was... I, I mean, for you guys, what, what kind of player do you see in Ampadu? I mean, positionally, because this still confuses mm. me. Yeah. Is he a centre-half? Is he a deep-line midfielder? Is he a... Is he kind of is he a ball player at the base of midfield? I, I mean, I, I saw him play out in Leipzig when they knocked out Spurs in the Champions League. What do his attributes suit? Which which role on the field? I think that's a really good question, and I think that that is at the crux of his stagnation. And it sounds awful to say stagnation. He's nineteen, but I did I did expect him to be in a better place at this point of his career. I saw him in the flesh for the first time at, at Lincoln in the Checker Trade semi-final and Lincoln won that night but but Ampadu was the best player on the pitch and Hudson Adoy played played that evening as did a number of, of players that have gone on to, to really star and he, he was just brilliant. What I think is his best position based on, on what I've seen of him is, is in a back three in the middle of a back three organising, sweeping up in effect, being that, that, that deep lying playmaker from a centre-half position because he he likes to have everything in front of him. He's a real organiser. What he lacks, I think, is is a real physical presence for a centre-half, especially in a two. And in central midfield, where he can pass, of course he can pass and move. and He's a very uh, gifted footballer. Again, has he got the strength, the power, the, the mobility to excel in that role? He's definitely caught between the two stools. For me, he needs to be playing in a side that that has three at the back. That, that's how I see it. I don't, I don't know what you, what you make of it, guys. Yeah, I think you know, if you look at Leipzig as a as a side, they're they're very very comfortable in possession, and I think you know that's that goes for the defenders as well. So if you look at someone like Dayo Upamecano, he looks to me probably to be the next global talent to come out of Germany, certainly as a defender. And he's almost a Manchester City type to me, where someone who can take the ball out, a sort of a almost like a Rio Ferdinand type of figure. Am I succumbing to the hype here, Seb? Or you know, you look at Upper Meccano, he seems to be made for another big move. Yeah, he's one of the best defensive prospects I've ever seen. I don't think that's hyperbole. He's for those who haven't seen him, and I would recommend watching him live if you can, because a big part of his game is the confluence between his technical ability and his size. So think of it like this. If Rio Ferdinand was built like a vending machine, then that's what, that's, that's what you would get in that player. He I've is, never heard that one, built like a vending machine. I love it. <laughs> but it, he is. He's kind of, you know, his technical abilities are what stands out first. But if you if you, if you you watch him, for instance, now I'm, I'm sure the internet has, has plenty of highlights of him, and so it wouldn't be too difficult to find. But if you watch him in one-on-one battles even against players who are very physical, it's like watching an adult take the ball off a child. He has timing. He has the ability to pass the ball. Mike, you're spot on with that Man City thing because he can play the ball so nicely out of defence. He can find a deep-sitting midfielder pretty easily, cut the first line of the press. But what I grew up on is I want my defenders to be able to defend first and foremost. And he can do those things. It's not a compromise. And he is. I mean, I... I've heard the kind of fees that the clubs are reportedly willing to pay for him, and I can completely believe it. He looks at him. He looks like the kind of player that you could build a team off for a decade. Yeah, he's he's a bit of a mix, isn't he, between Sol and Rio? If you're thinking of two two classic English centre halves, so yeah, he's only 21, scope to develop. So yeah, no wonder they're all after him. I, I know that Arsenal have been looking at him for a long, long time. Couldn't I believe find the money at the time to 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 get him a year ago or. Yeah, I think it was a year in the last summer window. And I think they, they might be priced out of the market now. The problem is, for all the English clubs that are interested, if, if Bayern Munich want him, and, and there are rumours that they do, then then Bayern seems, almost always seems to get their own way with, with players playing in Bundesliga. But, but let's see, definitely quality. Do you see, you know, you mentioned Bayern there. They're playing at Union Berlin on Sunday afternoon, clearing the league. Do you still feel that they're favourites for the Bundesliga title? Uh, I do, yeah. I, uh, but but the pause 
definitely see would benefit Leipzig and Dortmund, you would imagine, because Bayern had such momentum, didn't they, going into the break? We saw what they did to Chelsea, absolutely dismantled them and and the form under the new manager was 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 frightening, really. And and all of the key men, especially the older players that had gone off the boil, was was solid. Now, can those older players pick up where they left off, or will it take them a bit of time? What you've got to consider here is the turnaround. The Bundesliga basically said you've got to go. I think ten ten days or so of training, really, and, and the players are, are being asked to, to get straight back out there. Now, in my experience, that will help younger players rather than the more senior guys who who may you know, have to look after their bodies a little bit more carefully. And for me, that, that plays into Leipzig and, and Dortmund's hands. So although I think they have to be favourites, given the players, the quality they have, the pause opens the door, I think, for, for, for a real challenge from behind. Yeah. Leverkusen are a fifth there at uh, Werder Bremen on Monday evening. And again, if we're talking about young players, they've got Kai Havertz, their youngest debutant just after 17, 38 goals, I think, 30 assists in 130-odd games. Again, I'm looking at him in a Premier League context, Seb. Is he the sort of player, that sort of winger, attacking midfield player, who'd probably flourish in a Liverpool system? I, I wonder, Mike, I, I think he's slightly more suited to a Manchester City. Havertz is, I mean, he's fun. If you haven't seen him before, then then that's a reason, you know, whether there's a crowd watching or not, just sit in front of your TV and just watch someone mm. play because he's, there's so much flair to his game and creativity. But I, I think the strongest part of his skill set is his through balls. So I think his specialty is that intricate cutting pass that, you know, Guardiola wants from his attacking midfielders into the box to capitalise on the kind of movement of his forwards and his wide forwards. So I think he suits that. I mean, whether whether he kind of, whether he suits the back and forward of Klopp's game, I don't know. Whether he has the defensive attributes, he may well do. I I'm, I don't know. But I, I, I love what, he, what he's able to produce on the ball. And so that's what, I, I kind of, that's probably why I place him more in a city. Even a Man United, had they not signed someone like Bruno Fernandes, yeah. then that would have been a perfect transfer. I, I do agree. I, I think his defensive attributes are decent. I think he, he, he recovers possession well. He's, he definitely will work work hard, Havertz. I really like him. I've, I've, ever since I first saw him, I, th- I thought, oh, he's got a bit of class about him, really elegant He's entertaining, player. isn't he, Aid? He's just he's, he's yeah. one of those guys that you pay to watch. He's just fun. Definitely. Yeah, and, and the end product is there, as Mike has, has outlined. I think he'd be sensational in the, in the Premier League. Yeah, I see him more as a... Three eight, he's number ten. If I had to pin a position on him, I'd say number ten because of that, that that those quality through balls, and because he pops up in the box to to score goals. He's not someone that ch- that practically plays as a striker. He, he times his runs very very nicely. I, I'd love to see him at Arsenal. I think he'd he'd be a big upgrade on well not a big upgrade, but an upgrade on on Mesut Ozil, whose whose time is probably coming towards the end at Arsenal. If Arsenal were looking for you know a, a playmaker in a similar-ish mould, then Havertz would, would, would be one that I'd be looking at. But but whether they could afford him is, is certainly another matter because he's got to be, he has to be, one of the most coveted young players in, in Europe right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm desperate to spend Liverpool's money here. So uh, <laughs> what about Timo Werner? <laughs> yeah, well, he'd score more goals than Firmino, I think, Mike, for sure. I mean, the record is frightening, isn't it? And and he's still a young young player that's developing. He's 24 now you look at every great striker, every striker down the years in the Premier League. Look at the, look at players that have won the Golden Boot. Probably Vardy, the exception, who came much later. But you know your Henri's, Van Nistelrooy's, these guys, Shearer's, twenty four to twenty eight. That is when they they just score for fun. So he's coming into his peak years. Whoever gets him, if he does leave Germany, will get someone as quick that scores a hatful. So whether he's got the all round, you know, skill set of certain other strikers, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I I might be setting myself up for a huge social media mm. fool here, but um, do we really think he's a he's a he's a proper nine? Like if we if we're spending Liverpool's money, then mm. where are we placing him within that that three? Because I I, I think he's I, I accept that he's a he's a really talented goal scorer, but mm. he just mm. when I saw him, he just looks like much more of a wide forward. Mm. Certainly within a Premier League context. I mean, I, I, does, does he have the attributes of a modern nine in terms of the that's link of a, play? And the... 
that is a good shout. Look, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, he he could play the uh, a Vardy type role and spear yeah, yeah, yeah. into the channels because and play on the look. If I had a player of his pace in my team, I'd want him to play on the shoulder of the last defender. But you're right because Liverpool used those kind of players in a, in a wide area in Mane and, and Salah. Firmino works so well because he's the link man. He, he, he draws defenders with them, as we know, to create room for, for for those runners to go in behind. If all three want to run in behind, that's a problem, isn't it? So, so you're right. If he if he signs for Liverpool, he'd probably end up on the flank, as it happens, as one of those wide forwards. If he played for most teams, I think I think he would still be down the middle. But but I I think you've raised a. A very valid issue there. Yeah. Any other players that you're particularly looking forward to seeing, Seb? I can't get enough of watching Erling Holland for obvious reasons. I know we've covered Dortmund and I know that's hardly original, but I just, he's he's such a spectacle because he's he's quite, and I, I, I hope this is taken in the, in the way it's intended, but he's quite a strange looking person proportionally. <laughs> like his, his, his arms he are... speaks well to you, mate, by the way. way. <laughs> Hey, we we can see what you look like yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> of, of, a, of a morning. I just, I just I just mean as a sort of as a as an athlete. So he's kind of he, he just looks like a force on the pitch. So when he's running forward, when he's when he's chasing onto a through ball or running through on goal, like everything's everything looks slightly odd. He's like a monster, and I mean that, that I, I mean that with kindness. But it, and it just I love watching him. He's fun. He's he plays like a young person should play the game before it's all about pressure and endorsement, all that kind of thing. He plays in a way that suggests he really loves it. And I love, you know, if I, I, I don't have any children, but you know, as in when I have a son, you, you point to someone like that and say, look how he plays. And that's how it should look. That's, that's what, that's what being a professional athlete should, should feel like. I think, yeah, I can't wait to watch him again. Just after, I mean, I've still got the memory of that goal he scored against PSG. Just the thump and the noise it made when it hit the net. It's just that that's football. That's that was just great. Yeah, that's one of my favourite sounds in football, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. Fantastic. The nets at the West Farland starting. Yeah. Yeah. European Knights, you know, the latest in the series over this weekend. This one covers Manchester City. The four games that are gonna be shown are City's three one win over Barcelona in November twenty sixteen. The four two win at Napoli a year later, looking back at the win at Bayern in 2013, and also the 7-0 win over Schalke, uh, which was March 19. Let's talk about two of those games, the wins over Barcelona and Schalke, because that one especially will allow us to look forward a bit. That Barcelona win, it almost marked the arrival of Pep Guardiola as as a city manager, didn't it? I thought so, yeah, because in previous meetings with the with the real elite of European football, they'd just fallen a bit short, hadn't they, City? I don't know if they believed. And we've heard so much down the years of from City, not just under Pep, but, but previous managers, oh, we, we, we're not ready to win the Champions League. We're not We're not there yet. We, we're, new, we're too new. And, and I always thought that's, that's garbage, really, because anyone can win the Champions League. You don't have to be the the best side in Europe, the most cultured, the most rounded, the most experienced. You just need a bit of luck and an inspiration along the way. And and you can do it. You know, there are previous winners. Chelsea, Porto are two that immediately spring to mind as, as being surprise, surprise victors. So, but, but this win, they did deserve and they played with no inferiority complex at all. They, they basically took it to them. It was a bit... If memory serves me right, it was a bit like a Premier League game. Like you attack, we attack, and and neither defence was great. And Stones and Otamendi were won the winning team, but I don't think they convinced anybody <laughs> that 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 evening, and, and or, or since actually for that matter. But no, it, it was a, it was one of those nights where you thought, well, City believe they can they can mix it with the big boys. Their star players stepped up. De Bruyne with a brilliant free kick. Aguero was great. Silva, Gundogan scored a couple, didn't he? So yeah, it was it, it was it was memorable for sure. And if I was a City fan, that, that that has to rank as as one of the top two or three highlights they've seen in the Champions League since since they've been back in it. Yeah, it was critical, wasn't it? Because you know, if you're talking about an inferiority complex, that was almost enhanced a fortnight before that game. They they were absolutely you know, battered four 0 in the new Camp. 
I thought it was really interesting looking back at, 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 at some of the footage of that game and also a quote which stood out for me, Seb, was when Pep said, you know, he recognised the significance of that win by saying, look, it's a good step to say that once in our lives we played against the best team in the world and we beat them. In other words, well, we're not bad, really. Yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's sometimes it's hard to separate one one uh, Guardiola comment from the other for for the next really because he, he says an awful lot of things like that but I think it's true because I think the Champions League history has proved that it's a psychological trial as much as it is a footballing one because City have always had this thing it's very very strange that even now that a club like Tottenham have reached the Champions League final but Manchester City haven't and I think part of it has been this kind of this this psychosis that they experience whenever they play these kind of sides. I remember a game that they ultimately drew, but a game that they were outplayed against Real Madrid at the Etihad. There's something about them where you get teams like Liverpool who raise their level against the best, always seem able to, to kind of be drawn out of their shell and, and raise their level when they play a Barcelona or Juventus, you know, or obviously an AC Milan, more pertinently. City the opposite. City seem to become more reticent and seem to back off the Premier League level that they've established. So I felt it was very important. I, you know, it was also Kevin De Bruyne was absolutely brilliant in that game. And it was one of those where I think in that kind of context, you need you need to win as a team. You also need certain players to feel like they're world class and for their abilities, for the abilities that they show domestically to, to really shine brightly against that kind of opponent in that kind of game. I felt that was really, really important. And it's one of the first times I remember De Bruyne thinking, or watching De Bruyne thinking, I think he played against, um, I think Andre Gomez was actually in Barcelona's midfield that night, and thinking, right, De Bruyne's head and shoulders above that kind of player. And so psychologically, that's got to be really beneficial. Yeah, you, you, when you think about City in the Champions League, it's almost a, an if-only experience, isn't it, Aid? Now, that Schalke <laughs> yeah. game... You know, they thrashed them 7-0. I think Aguero got them on their way. Raheem Sterling was outstanding. Yet, and there's always a but, isn't there? They got into the quarterfinals and that was when almost the that latent inferiority complex came out. You know, obviously mm. we know the way they, they went out last year. Mm. What will it take, do you think, for Manchester City to get over this hurdle? Mm, it, it's a really good question. They're undoubtedly good enough. They really are. But in terms of the quality and talent they have and the manager they have, I think the problem, and, and, and Seb touched on it there in, in terms of they, they haven't raised their game against the big boys. They've they've been a bit more wary. And, and I think it all boils down to one thing, and that City know that they have a vulnerability at the back. They know that in the Premier League, they can switch off at times and still steamroller the, the vast majority of opponents. They're too good on the ball not to win the majority of matches. And, and the fact that they're a little bit shaky on turnovers, etc., it doesn't hurt them. In European football against the very best, it hurts them. And we've seen that seen that in recent seasons. And we saw it you know, against Spurs, you know, a, a, a really good Premier League team in the competition last year. So no, I th I still think that 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 either tactically or more more personally, talent wise, they need to strengthen defensively. They need to, you know, your Stones is not a Mendes, a, a good players, but I, I'm I'm just not quite sure they're they're good enough, especially when you've got flying fullbacks and you rely so heavily on these guys to get forward. They have to recruit a world-class centre-back, I think, to be considered worthy favourites. They could still win it, but they might need a bit of luck and it'll be a very entertaining way to win it, I suspect, high-scoring way, if they were to win it this year or next. Yeah, if we're looking into the future, Seb, you know, nothing happens at Manchester City by accident, does it? It's a very strategically focused football club or multiples of football clubs. And I mention that because City have just added the Belgian second division club, Lommel, to their roster. So there's now a global network of nine teams in that City group. Is that the shape of things to come at the very highest level of club football, do you think? Uh, I really hope not, Mike. I'm going to 
lose friends and alienate people here, but I, I just hate this. It's a process by which gradually football becomes the property of a select few clubs. I'm actually looking down the list of clubs that um, the City Group own at the moment. Yokohama Marinus, Montevideo City, Girona, obviously. Sichuan, I think, in China is, is there as well. I, it feels like footballing risk with organisations shuffling their little pieces around the board. And I'd recommend anyone, if they get the opportunity, and lockdown is a, a pretty good chance to do this, to have a read of Ferran Soriano's book, because I found it quite alarming, this kind of model of, of what he ideally would like football to look like and you know his strategy. And uh, it, I'm not criticising it. I just, it's not for me, because I, I, I feel like this sort of acquiring of clubs around the globe creates what well, is detrimental to the spirit of the game it's it's anti-competition and i don't care for it. it's not the game i grew up with it's not really football it's a geopolitical strategy game and i i don't care for it so i hope not i hope not i'm sure it will be because that's the way things go in football it slides i mean it, it, it falls into the control of the of the most powerful the most rich and that becomes more and more the case every single year but that's a very dispiriting reality and whilst you can applaud these moves from a business perspective and, you know, a strategical perspective, from a fan, no, I don't want it. Yeah, but when you look around, Aid, I suppose there are so many clubs now at the top end who are actively building up their networks of feeder clubs. You know, it, mm. it builds into the whole idea of the loan system being some form of profit centre rather than anything else. And... You know, it's it's a global shop window that people are going to put their product into. Mm, yeah, they are. No, I, I, no, I, I'm, I'm with Seb really in terms of a sporting sense. I don't, I don't care a lot for it. Look, they're, they're in the second tier, aren't they, of, of Belgian football right now? I'm not sure how many, you know, how many of their players they're going to want to loan loan to there to gain experience or or to even. Pick up, you know. I'm not sure that Lomo is a breeding ground for 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 future stars necessarily. But look, it's nor are the are the cities and, and clubs that they've that they've picked off around the world. But but look for for those clubs involved. I guess that that they're happy, aren't they? They're happy to to have the injection of cash to improve their their own infrastructures to to raise standards. So so those clubs themselves, there's no, yeah. Of course, they're not going to complain about it. But yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a fan of, of of it in general, and 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 isn't it? I mean, you're not seeing Tottenham's ownership necessarily, or Arsenal, and and, and clubs like that go after teams around the world, are you? In terms of of acquiring feeder clubs, I mean, do you really think that that might be the case? Do you think all of the big six or or the biggest clubs in the Premier League might look to do that? Then, Mike? I I think I think it could become a natural extension of what I suspect is going to be the next dimension of the game, which is the Super League. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I think the current crisis has probably accelerated this, that we will have a, a European or even a global Super League probably sooner rather than later. And in that context, it would make sense that the biggest clubs, the global clubs, if you like, would have little feeder clubs in smaller leagues. And, you know, and I'm not, and this is where probably we get to the nub of the debate about B teams in, in, in the football league. And I think around the world, they will have their own networks which feed into or feed down from the big club, i.e. the Super League club. I think that's the way it's going to work. One, one of my big fears with this, because Mike's just touched on this, so it's you know, right time to talk about it, is if the game goes the way we think it is going to, then... Future generations of fans are going to be are going to be shuffled into one of maybe seven or eight categories, because think about this from the perspective of the fan who's locked out of this decadent land of milk and honey, this Super League. Like, where is your motivation to? Where are you going to be drawn to? Is it going to be the bright lights of a Super League? Are you just going to become one of a either a Manchester City, a Chelsea, or a Man United fan? Is that is that the future in England? Because if you then add in networks of clubs then that kind of, that's just a, a broader holding pen for that sort of movement. You're going to have these clubs when they all attract the, the best individual players. They dominate their local territories because they're not going to be associations anymore. They're actually going to be territories, really. And it's going to create a very 
I don't know. It's not a spectacle I care for. I know I'm moaning and I know I just sound <laughs> like an old git complaining about, you know, the way things are, are, are going to be. But it makes me unhappy because the game's variety is its appeal. That is its its breadth, its differences. It's That is its meal ticket. That is why we love it. Not because, not because of anything I've heard speculatively uh, promoted for the future. I, I, I don't... Um, I have a hard time with it, as you can probably hear. This is turning into a little bit of a therapy session, but uh, it, it's um, it's important because I, I think we're moving down a path potentially where we don't quite understand what we risk losing, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, you know, I hope I'm not going to put you on the spot here, Aid, but let's put it into a context that you would understand, Arsenal. Would you prefer Arsenal to maybe make that great leap forward, or per- perceived leap forward into a global Super League or a European Super League, whatever you want to call it, or would you want them to remain true to their traditions and their context, if you like, and that is to stay in the Premier League? What, do you, what would you prefer? <laughs> hmm. Well, I prefer both. <laughs> so I like it like it is. I'm sorry. Yeah, I like the Premier League. I like the Champions League. I, I, don't, I don't want there to be a change I, I don't know I, I'm a traditionalist really it, it, it depends what if everyone joins joins a global super league or a European super league and Arsenal aren't, aren't in it you would feel a bit left out and I, and I think Arsenal do aspire to be among among the elite or the so-called elite in terms of, of world football so so yeah I, I wouldn't want them to to miss out on it if I'm being honest but it's such a hard question. Such a hard question. I ju- I just think that, that that it's fine as it is with the Champions League, and it, it, maybe they can turn the Champions League into some kind of world league. But as long as it's in conjunction with domestic competitions, I'm okay with that. But but not not at the expense. I, I don't, it would ruin it would ruin everything. And I, I don't think supporters of the big clubs would really want. Arsenal, United, City, Liverpool, etc., to to pull out of a Premier League to 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 solely play against these global giants. I don't, I don't think there's an appetite for fans, but as we've seen in the past, maybe their voices won't won't matter that much if the, if the money talks. But yeah, I sincerely hope it doesn't happen. Okay, well, let's look at um, you know, a feel good tournament, if you like. You've suggested it, Seb, Euro twenty sixteen. You know, notable for. Cristiano Ronaldo getting his shirt off yet again. Wales <laughs> getting to the semi-finals and England, Iceland, which I know um, uh, appears in your nightmares. Aid, Seb, why did you choose that one? Okay, it's not for any feel-good factor. Sorry, guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take us <laughs> to a yeah. It's because I associate Euro 2016 with the treatment received by Raheem Sterling. So I remember, I can't remember which which stage of the tournament it was. I remember going on to, um, to Five Live to talk about this because it had become this public thing where people were retaliating against what they were seeing on the front page of the newspapers and the tone of that coverage and the way he was singled out. Now, scapegoating England players is nothing new, but in the past, typically, that's been connected with you know, a Beckham moment, a Phil Neville giving away a penalty, Gareth Southgate missing a penalty, uh, Euro 96. But what we saw in 2016, I felt was a new low in the relationship between parts of the press and an England player, just because Raheem Sterling did not have a good tournament. But then I can't remember many who really peaked above about a 6 out of 10. He was just one of an underperforming squad. And what he suffered was a disgrace. Honestly, it's a disgrace. And I've seen people try and defend it. And... I've seen people uh, pretend it was something other than what it was and motivated by things that, you know, um, had, had, had different motivations to what was obviously sort of provoking that, that coverage. I've never been more embarrassed, actually, to, to, to work, you know, in the inverted commas media or actually to be English because the idea that you can, you, you can do that in a sort of satisfy the crowd way because Raheem Sterling didn't do anything wrong during that tournament. You know, we didn't pick on Joe Hart, who was absolutely dreadful. That's his worst one for England. And so we find the the player in that instance that we think members of the public are going to react badly to or are going to enjoy the flogging of. And I just thought it was it was just it was a national embarrassment. And I remember it and I bring it up because I just hope it never happens again. 
I think I just hope that is the low point. So I'm um, like, there's lots of good things about Euro 2016, lots of great football, but I approach it from England perspective, and that uh, dominates my memory of it from 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 that angle because it's just uh, abhorrent, honestly, awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I, I completely agree with that. But but for, for for the misery of England, you've got the joy of Wales, haven't you? Um, <laughs> so so look, it, it wasn't it wasn't all all doom and gloom it certainly was for was for england but but the welsh story was amazing wasn't it the home nations i think apart from england will look back on this one fondly you, had, you know northern ireland got through didn't they to, to the last 16 or scraped in ireland beat italy and wales unbelievably got got to the semi-finals and and it wasn't just about bale as, as brilliant as gareth bale was in that tournament it wasn't a one-man show, and I think that 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 was one of the stories for me of of, of the competition because Joe Allen, previously unheralded, really, and Aaron Ramsey, a player that that, that divided opinion among Arsenal fans, not least, they made the team of the tournament and deservedly so. They they were both sensational, and you you had Car- Robson Carnu as a sort of real workhorse up top at the back. The back three were brilliant. I just, yeah, the, the the Welsh story was almost Leicester, wasn't it? It was almost Leicester City on the international stage. Such a shame they couldn't couldn't go the whole way. But but yeah, that that win against Belgium, I think, will live long in the memory, won't it? Yeah, you know, I hear what you're saying about Gareth Bale, and it was a collective effort. But I suppose you know, linking Gareth Bale with with Raheem Sterling. They prove that in their own way, you can be a role model. I know that phrase has been cheapened somewhat because it's a bit of a cliche now. doesn't mean to say it's wrong. If you look at Gareth Bale, there's someone who absolutely grows into the responsibility of representing his country away from the you know ephemera of Real Madrid and the hysteria of Real Madrid. I think he finds himself when he has a, a Welsh jersey on. And I think it's really interesting that, and I, you know, I'm glad you brought it up, actually, Seb, the treatment of someone like Raheem Sterling, because his response to that treatment, I think, has been exceptional. Oh, yeah. It's been mature, it's been reasoned, and it's been spiky when it's needed to be spiky. And I think what we're looking at is, you know, modern footballers are beginning to understand that the the depth of their influence and in the way that someone you know I don't know if you're watching the last dance the 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 Michael Jordan documentary at the moment where there's someone who has a real awareness of his role in society and you know financially and he's bullying a team to basically win five six titles on the on the bounce but there's someone when you look at someone like Sterling Here's someone who's not just a footballer, and I think that's a really important development, especially, and I'll try and now bring it into current uh, context, you know, Sterling has talked about his unease about coming back to to train and play. The captains, I think, have been very interesting in the role that they're playing in the current discussions. Some of the names that have come up, Mark Noble at West Ham, who, who is a very principled guy, Troy Deeney, who's not afraid to be out there in terms of pushing his his own agenda there's some really interesting dynamics going on behind the scenes and behind the suits isn't there i think so i mean i i think that the great change mike is is agency isn't it it's it's players feeling like they're in a position to to tackle issues like that it's almost like something that um it, it's more traditionally american american athletes have been over the years over the decades have been more associated with political causes or social issues. Whereas in this country, I've always felt like um, maybe it's because of the way the press covers sports in this country. I, I don't know. But it, it has always felt as if players have instinctively backed off anything like that because they don't want to wander into that sort of arena. And I think, um, I don't want to describe it like a blessing because obviously it's a, you know, we remain in a very serious global situation. But I think one of the the positives and one of the, the sort of the silver linings has been to see the way some of these players have owned the situation. I think it speaks to real maturity. I think it also tenuously describes what what football is producing as an athlete, the kind of person football is producing an athlete. And I see that as a more mature adult, and that has to be positive. Yeah, you know, I I just want to get your your view of this. I read a stat which 
which really surprised me. And, and you know, it's it around the debate about you know, safety and player safety. Some research from Denmark that suggests that players are only within infectious distance of each other for 88 seconds during a game. I found that extraordinarily low. What about you? Yeah, yeah, no, me too. Uh, look, I, I, I don't know how how accurate this research is. You know, it's, it's the Scandinavians are normally pretty pretty thorough, aren't they, in, in regards to the way they look at things. Uh, it's encouraging. It's, it's good. And, and that kind of message may need to be passed on to the players. I just, I just feel that, that football, if there is somebody that is infected on a football pitch, I, I find it hard to believe that that they're not more liable to pass it on than 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 we would be in a shop or the street purely on the basis of 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 the breathing and 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 players are breathing very very heavily aren't they during the course of a match and when they are in close proximity to each other i would i would have thought that the, the chances of passing on the, the the virus might might be higher but look it, it's it's positive news i i guess and and this will be one of Several messages that I think will be filtered down to the players over the coming days. That they just need they need a bit of reassurance, don't they? That that they are going to to be working in a in a very safe clinical environment. And and do you know what? I I, I as as much as there are players that will be frightened for for various personal reasons, they'll be frightened of of catching the virus as, as we all are. I still think that that the vast majority of them at the moment just feel left out of the conversation and 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 that is at the heart of their of their grumblings if they're included if they're given all the information then uh, and talked to like adults and asked not told maybe asked whether they're ready then then that might be all that they need to to progress yeah until this point i think they feel like they're they're just guinea pigs and 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 the powers that be have to have to do all they can to to make sure that players don't feel like that because there is while they still feel left out of the conversation there is that chance that possibility they'll say no we're not we're not we're not ready we're not going to do this and and obviously that has that has big ramifications yeah well certainly you know we'll, we'll see how it all pans out in the next few days you know there's some talk is it now june 19th as a starting date Seb, I you know I'm hesitant about asking you this, but have you got anything else you want to get off your chest? <laughs> yeah, actually, because it, it, it fits in with what Adrian's just said, actually. So the last couple of days, I've been watching the debate about the restart. Obviously, around the country, there are a couple of industries which have started to return to work. And with that has come a, a new type of debate in which people say things like, um, well, if I have to go to work and if I have to get on the tube, then why are footballers not? Why are footballers complaining? Why are footballers quibbling about putting on games or returning to training. And I just want to say, like, I, I think it's really important that we understand the nuance of this and that we contextualise football property, uh, football properly even, because yes, some industries are going back to work and there are people being put at risk, but that isn't to say that we shouldn't listen to what footballers say when they, when they talk of, for instance, endangering their relatives unnecessarily. And I think that's a really important word. Like football is, it's a sport, it's a pastime. And we cannot compare apples with oranges. So let's not go down the road of minimising the risk to these players. And let's be open-minded with what they say, because the human lives, these are people that um, have elderly relatives, fragile relatives. We cannot have a one-size-fits-all judgment in this scenario. So let's um, let's pause for thought a little bit. I know it's difficult in, um, under current conditions, but it is important. Yeah. What about yourself, Aid? Anything to yeah, well, add? Not so much. Not so much. Get off my chest. I, I just uh, we haven't mentioned the EFL today, and and you know I don't want them to be completely forgotten here. I I, I thought it was encouraging. If it, it's slightly depressing that the the likelihood is, of of the season being completed is is looking more and more remote by the day. But but the talk that points per game may decide the automatics, but then there would be a, they would still be a series of playoff matches. To decide the, the the other promotion berth, I, th- I thought that was that was encouraging. It's something I've brought up on on a previous show. I think I, I think it's really important not to draw a really big black line on that league table when when things are so so tight. I'd like to open it up to to have a little mini competition of of sorts that the EFL fans can can enjoy hopefully 
during the course of the summer. Look, I still hold out hope that there'll be some kind of package sent down to the EFL that will enable them to function and to complete their season. But but I, I, I do think that that's, that's unlikely. The playoffs, some kind of playoff scenario... That, that that's a that's a, a a small consolation for me. Yeah, well, I make no apology for returning to the subject of pre-academy football. Now, the Premier League will begin regulating it for the first time next season. It seems that clubs are set to be allowed to field teams from under seven upwards. Now, there's going to be no minimum age limit at which boys can be coached. There was a suggestion it should be under seven as well, but the clubs rejected that. Now, I know the new system comes with safeguards and it focuses on player welfare. But in my view, it will accelerate the race to the bottom. More children will be treated as commodities. That's wrong and avoidable. And it's not too late to think again. So... Thanks to you all for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast and please stay safe out there. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.